Okay, so here's what's going on. So, yeah, that's just going to do a local recording on your end. But, yeah, um, well, welcome back. You were, you were just here a month ago. <laughs> but um, you, you hit... Back. Well, yeah. Welcome back, Keanu. Welcome everybody who's listening to you know Fruitless Patreon. Um, you mentioned at the end of last ep- of the la- your last appearance, um, talking about Israel Palestine, that there is a a whole last story about how America, how the United States became obsessed with Israel. Um, and I, I'd love to hear that story. So that's what we're here to to do. Definitely. So um, what I want to do first is just uh, throw some books out for your readers. Um, uh, and I'll send this, obviously, to you, Jose, later. Okay. Uh, a couple books that I think are super important. Um, well, and these are books that come from different ideological spectrums. Like, for example, some of them are written from a more pro-Zionist perspective. Uh, others are written from a more um, critical perspective of Zionism in general, but sure. both of them share, or, or m- all the books I'm about to mention, share a, a skepticism towards Christian Zionism. Uh, okay. And the first title would be Stephen Spector's Evangelicals in Israel, The Story of American Christian Zionism. The second one would be Victoria Clark's Allies for Armageddon, The Rise of Christian Zionism. And the third one would be Samuel Goldman's God's Country, Christian Zionism in America. Awesome. And most of my most of my knowledge comes from reading these secondary sources and from having conversations with people across my life who have articulated or espoused views in some way adjacent to something like Christian Zionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one it, it kind of it's kind of hard to, to 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 ask the question where should one begin the story, but I think uh, it would be really interesting for your viewers to to learn that christian zionism in a, in a, in its kind of proto form begins with calvinist millenarianism okay yeah it, it begins um not so much with the first wave of the reformation with like martin luther and john calvin but with folks after that okay um and it's important to remember that Calvin and Luther themselves weren't necessarily especially fond of Jewish people in general, <laughs> right? No. Like that's something we have to clarify that um, for, 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 to some extent, Luther, but definitely Calvin, supersessionism was a, was a steadfast ideological component of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Supersessionism simply refers to the idea that the church, the Christian church, has functionally replaced the, the people of God which used to be Israel, the the ethnic national body. Mm. It's been replaced by the Christian people. This is not a preferable alternative to to Christian Zionism. Like if the (laughs) choice is between Christian Zionism or supersessionism, we ought to reject both, right? So I just want your viewers to to know that. Yeah, it's it's two two different flavors of anti-Semitism here. Exactly. (laughs) That in in being kind of critical towards Christian Zionism, which could be a kind of philo-Semitism, um, mm-hmm. I think the alternative of anti-Semitism is not better. Just right. clarifying that out the gate. <laughs> um, so basically, we get to the um, um, the moment where Martin Bucer and Peter Martyr Vermigli are are teaching uh, at Cambridge and Oxford, and we get to a moment where there is these a uh, little bit later. 
during the Tudor and early Stuart period in England, uh, I'm sure some of your viewers would know about the, the Laudian Anglican Church, right? Mm-hmm. Where some of the, the Presbyterians were super angry because they were like, hey, why are these like Laudians who are really opposed to predestination and the doctrines that we hold most dear to us? Why are they why are they teaching views that go against the 39 articles, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. And right. so uh, what happened was uh, there's this Bible translation that was made called the Geneva Bible. And if you look at the notes of the, well, what's a unique feature is that sim- similar to the um, Douay Reims translation, the Geneva Bible also has footnotes to it. And these footnotes are are not like what you find in the NRSV today with these helpful hints about how to interpret the text. It's like aggressively ideological notes on yeah, yeah. what these, what these like uh Bible passages would yeah, suggest. It's, it's, yeah, like a footnote that says, this is why, well, this is what that verse means. Like, exactly right not just like oh it would be relevant to know in this historical context this is what this means no this is like no this is the the doctrinaire interpretation <laughs> and so part of this um uh you know um geneva bible the book of romans was super important and there are some problematic verses in the book of romans if you read them on the face of it right one of one of the one of the suggestions of the book of romans is that the jewish people who had rejected Jesus Christ, and I'm putting all of these in massive air quotes, right? There was going to be a massive conversion in the end times, and all of the Jewish people Mm -hmm. who had rejected Jesus would come to follow Jesus. And it's super important to note that Paul himself was a Jewish person, Mm -hmm. that all of the critical scholarship uh, that we have today shows pretty definitively that in no way did Paul intend to start a new religion, in no way did he view Judaism writ large as superseded or uh, made uh, moot by the advent of Jesus Christ, but that there there are unique trajectories of how Gentiles and Jews ought to relate to the messiahhood of Jesus. That Mm -hmm. this is something that is pretty uncontroversial today in critical New Testament studies and scholarship. Mm -hmm. Um, With that said, uh, Europeans in the 17th century might not have known that, right? And they... (laughs) They, they are definitely the more radical Calvinist ones, the Puritans, I should call them, um, start for the first time looking at um, this Geneva Bible commentary that has these uh, philo-Semitic interpretations of verses mm-hmm. in the Book of Romans. And really arguing, from this point forward, we have um, you know, the, the Oliver Cromwell episode in, uh, uh, you know, during the, the, the Commonwealth period. The, the Puritans are a fringe faction in in that, and you have some people during the Cromwell, I don't know if I can call it an administration, but during the Cromwell period, mm-hmm. they, they, they start advocating for um, this kind of millenarian revival that says, first of all, we need to bring more Jewish people back to England um, because mm-hmm. they had been banned since, what, the 13th century? Um, and that bringing... Uh, the Jewish people to England in the 13th century would open the door to restore them back to Palestine. Um, and the idea oh, wow. was... That's really the idea early. Was, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's batshit insane. Like this, I, I don't know. Nobody had said this, right? Before, before this. Yeah. This, was not a, this was not an acceptable eschatological position before this time, right? Um, but the idea is once we restore Jewish people back to England and then this idea of Christian restorationism includes this idea of restoring the Jewish nation. Um, once we restore them, there will be a mass conversion of Jews. 
and then the end times will begin. So, so it was an attempt to trigger the like doomsday. It was exactly. a tr- <laughs> right. right. Cool. Uh, the the fancy way of saying it is to amenitize the eschaton, right? Okay. To, yeah. To kind of like bring forward God's reign, uh, bring forward the second coming of Jesus Christ, and a lot of it uh, becomes tied up with these ethno-nationalist political narratives of the restoration of the Jewish people to Palestine. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, and we all know the story to some degree. Cromwell wasn't very successful, right? These uh, after Cromwell, we have a moment where the 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 British monarchies try to uh, um, resort back to their their classical heritage and to get rid of the Puritan influence of 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 the Cromwellian period. Um, and you have to keep in mind that in the 17th century, a lot of Puritans moved to North America as well, right? Um, some of the some of the earliest leaders of Harvard University. Increase Mather, for example, John Cotton, um, were all radical proponents of, of uh, you know, Jewish restoration to Palestine. Oh, wow. And if you think about, um, you know, they're writing books that talk about this, right? And uh, there are Enlightenment thinkers from Isaac Newton to Spinoza who are, who are talking about the restoration of, of Jews to Palestine, right? So the 17th century is really a big inflection point in these in these conversations, right? Now we we, we see a little bit of a decline um, in continental Europe, but in England it's going strong. And in the 18th century, so in the 1700s, we have the growth of political Zionism, and we have you know uh, the the French Revolutionary Wars. We have everything going on. Um, Everyone from the Moravian Church to John and Charles Wesley, John Gill the Baptist, all these people are are talking about political Zionism and this intersection of Pietism with Evangelicalism is has really strong roots in the Restorationist project. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what what becomes super interesting is that in the period after the the dominance of the Evangelicals like Jonathan Edwards. We have the growth in um, two separate ideologies. One of them, which your viewers might be familiar with, is called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is an eschatology or an end times theology that believes in a couple things. One of them is a literal thousand year reign of Christ, mm-hmm. but that um, you know uh, society will continue to become more Christian. Things will get better and better mm-hmm. until the return of Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. This is in uh, contradistinction to the amillennial perspective, which says that the thousand-year reign of Christ in the book of Revelation is a symbolic figure, that Christ is reigning actively right now, um, and there is no really significant importance to a political state of Israel, yada, yada, yada. Um, Mm -hmm. We get the rise of uh, postmillennialism, which is integral to the Manifest Destiny project and the uh, you know indigenous genocide of North America, postmillennialism is pretty closely tied up to that. The other view would be premillennialism, which has a more storied history to it in terms of church history. But the particular version that was tied up with comes up with what we can now call the awakener of American Christian Zionism, our favorite guy, John Nelson Darby. 
And Darby was a charlatan in every respect. Completely, <laughs> completely like has no respect attached to him, to him at all. Completely uh, an incredible figure in terms of having no credibility. Um, and um, figures like uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle, all of them were uh, advocates of, of this kind of Jewish restorationism. Um, Spurgeon himself didn't like dispensationalism, um, mm -hmm. but others others uh, really espoused this philo-Semitic uh, eschatology. Um, this uh, C.I. Schofield, he had the Schofield Reference Bible, all of these figures... Uh, in the in the in the you know moving on from the late 18th century into the 19th century, um, we get uh, uh, this kind of reawakening of Christian Zionism in the West. Sure, sure. Um, John Adams, our president, has a quote. Um, you can find this on the Wikipedia page for Christian Zionism, um, but he said. I really wish the Jews again in Judea an independent nation. Wow. He himself believed, ironically enough, that they would become Unitarian Christians. Hmm. And so you'd kind of mentioned, so so there's a a way in which post-millennials would be interested in Christian Zionism and then pre-millennials, and it was all millennials who aren't interested in that. That's right. And okay, just to clarify in case somebody who's not, is like very ignorant of Christian sure. theology here. Um, yeah, so so there is in 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 the book of Revelations it talks about a thousand year reign of you know Jesus. Uh, this is a millennium, and it it it's what it sounds like. Are we before it, the premillennium, you know, premillennial? Is it not really like that? Is it maybe metaphorical or whatever? Is it speaking to Jesus's reign now or whatever? A millennial, probably in my opinion, one of the more sane positions, um, or or post millennial, which is that it's it's coming. We are building this this millennium of peace. Um, although if I if I'm correct, post millennialism eventually gets kind of associated with certain forms of like progressivism later on, right? Right, uh, the social Christian socialists, yeah. Right, precisely. Um, if I had to, if I had to define um, uh, what postmillennialism is, um, one of the earliest articulations of it is in 1658, and you look at the Savoy Declaration, and I'll read this mm -hmm. one quote for you. It says, "As the Lord, in His care and love towards His church, hath in His infinite wise providence exercised it with great variety in all ages." For the good of them that love him and his own glory, so according to his promise, we expect that in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, and the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the churches of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace, shall enjoy in, the, in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than they have enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of Christian improvement idea. And it's one of the main ideas of Christian Reconstructionism. Um, and it, it's mm -hmm. been criticized by a lot of people that I respect as one of these attempts to amenitize the eschaton, right? And in a, in a nutshell, postmillennialism is basically the idea that Christ establishes his kingdom on earth through the preaching and ministry of his, of his life and empowers the church through the spirit, through the Great Commission to disciple all the nation. Mm-hmm. And postmillennialism basically sees that eventually the vast majority of people on earth will be saved. Um, the success of the gospel will, will produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which all the values of the Bible, like faith and righteousness and peace and prosperity, will prevail. Yeah. Um, 
And once these conditions are met, Jesus will return uh, to end history with the resurrection. Yeah, and you, um, and you can you can see both you know the the positive ways that that belief system could manifest and the very dark ways that belief system could manifest. Because if you associate the gospel and in Christianity with with like say economic justice and racial justice and stuff, then you you have this kind of progressive route like we're building Christianity. On the other hand, if you're seeing it more as we are going to convert the globe, it fits right into a colonial project very nicely. So it's it's a theology that that can really cut both ways. Before we get any farther, I'd also want to mention you you mentioned dispensationalism. Right. Um, what do you want to like lay out what dispensationalism is to someone who like like no understanding of Christian theology hasn't heard the term before? So unlike postmillennialism, um, uh, dispensationalism is a kind of hermeneutic. It is a it is a way of reading the Bible, um, especially the last book of the Bible, the book of Apocalypse or Revelation, mm-hmm. and it teaches um, uh, aspects of premillennialism. So to kind of go back even further, the three main frameworks for reading the book of Revelation itself are premillennialism, amillennialism, mm-hmm. and postmillennialism. Dispensationalism is a framework that relies heavily on a kind of bastardized reading of premillennialism um, mm-hmm. that teaches ideas like um, Christians are in no sense bound by Mosaic law, pretty uncontroversial, to more controversial things like there is an existential distinction between Israel and the church mm-hmm. to such an extent that God has two plans of salvation, one for Jews and one for the church. Um mm-hmm. It also teaches that national Israel will have a future restoration and that there will be a rapture, which I don't know what that means. Like there will be some, I mean, it, it left behind it, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like there's, it's not based in the Bible, right? It's right, based yeah. on some guy's 19th century imagination. Right. But the idea is that there will be some kind of rapture, which has been understood in the 21st and 20th century as some kind of you, you fly into the sky or something. Right. I think there's a verse in Thessalonians that vaguely uh, gestures in that direction, but it really it's not mm-hmm. meant to be interpreted that way. Yeah. Um, it teaches that there is this rapture before the second coming, and this is going to happen before a period of tribulation. Yeah. And this is called pre-tribulation dispensationalism. And there's other, like, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. There's other versions of this. There's, like, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. It's all bullshit, basically, right? And <laughs> there's there's no there's no evidence for any of this shit. It's completely 19th century hysteria. The, the most important thing about dispensationalism that you should know is that the Plymouth Brethren and John Nelson Darby were the most important folks in spreading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the folks that your listeners might be familiar with, Dwight L. Moody... Yep. Um, and the Niagara Bible Conference, who uh, 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 were super influential, led to C.I. Schofield introducing his Schofield Reference Bible. Um, it became so popular with Congregationalist, non-denominational Bible churches, Baptists, Pentecostals, and Charismatics. And it um, there's charts. Let me tell you. There are charts. <laughs> oh, there man. are charts that never should have been made with lots of colors and lots of shitty clip art graphics that tell you when something is going to happen at what point at what juncture it's all it's all ridiculous hysteria in my opinion right and i think that uh the question is then 
why is such a, in my opinion, silly set of ideas like dispensationalism, why is it so important? It's important mm -hmm. because um, it has led to, um, uh, I mean, let me tell you how, in, how uh, influential this guy, Herman Melville, right? The guy yeah. who wrote Moby Dick. He has a poem dedicated to Christian Zionism. Jesus, right? he says, I didn't know that. The Hebrew seers announce in time the return of Judah to her prime. Some Christians deemed it then at hand. Here was an object, up and on. We seed and tillage help renew, help reinstate the Holy Land. Okay. And so this, this idea of Christian Zionism was integral to the growth of the 19th century British Empire in its ideological vision, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine all these crazy archaeologists and ethnologists um, who have been influenced by this uh, philo-Semitic ideology were, were doing their field work in mandatory Palestine, being um, completely smitten by this vision of a return of the Jewish people and the amenitizing of the eschaton, the end of time, right? Mm -hmm. What's important to understand is that it wasn't until the time of the Balfour Declaration that political Zionism was taken seriously by the British elite. What was taken seriously was the Christian Zionism ideology that was really introduced in in, in earnest in the 19th century with a movement mm -hmm. called British Israelism. Right. And all these labels and all these things basically lead us to understand the, the ideological backbone that helps explain why it grew to popularity in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so something that might be pretty um, hard for people to swallow and accept is that someone as as liberal as Martin Luther King Jr. was a extreme supporter of Christian Zionism and the state of Israel. Hmm. Um, yeah. And whether or not he would today maintain that ideology is, a, is up for debate, um, but it's yeah. true. So during the time period from World War I to 1948, we have a period of ecumenical interfaith goodwill between Jews and non-Jews, and it's a time of incredible damage and hostility in the world. It's the time when the Holocaust happened. It's the time where we have, you know, the um, the explosion of mandatory Palestine and the, the beginning of the State of Israel in response to the Holocaust. Really, what becomes interesting to me is the percolation of all of this that happens in the context of 1967 and the Six Day War, hmm. where we have this new evangelicalism um, that is characterized by folks like Billy Graham, who take on the banner of Christian Zionism, right? And it's really from this period forward that people become more familiar with the big players, like Hal Lindsey and um, all hmm. this kind of dispensationalist nonsense. Um, it becomes more familiar. What I wanted to do was to provide that kind of intellectual genealogy and background that goes all the way to the 1600s to show where it emerged from ideologically yeah. and to kind of trace the 1600s, 1700s, the kind of uh, die down of the view after the Cromwell period and its resurgence in the, seven, in, in the mid to late 1700s and it's kind of being exported to the United States in the 1800s with yeah. uh, C.I. Schofield, John Nelson, Darby, and these ideologists who began cutting and pasting up the Bible in a kind of perverted Thomas Jefferson sense 
by reading what they wanted into the text mm -hmm. and reading the text in a way that the tradition had never authorized, which yeah. is to say, to say it explicitly, a literal systematic reading of the book of Revelation that views the text as primarily alluding to events that will take place in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think like, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but thinking through these eras, you're talking about this kind of resurgence of seeing it this way. Uh, you know, it, it seems to really line up with periods of time that to me anyway, I would understand why people believed the world was about to end. Absolutely. You're talking about like the French Revolution, talking about the English Civil War, you know, with the 1800s, we're talking about, you know, you know, America leading up to the Civil War. Um, and then, you know, from my understanding of like Schofield and the kind of um, growth of premillennial dispensationalism in the US, I understand it got really popular during World War One. Absolutely. Um, at least according to, I think the book is The Evangelicals by Fitzgerald. I'm going to put it in the show notes. But Evangelicals is another great book I can recommend. Yeah, that's a fantastic book. But from from my memory of reading that, it was, yeah, it was the interwar. It was World War One, and then the interwar period where there was a real sense that like things were falling apart. And so, yeah, of course, the Jews need to go back to, to Zion and we got to, the, the end times are here, clearly, you know, which of course they weren't, but it's very easy during periods of, you know, huge cataclysm like that, um, or even like, you know, the sense of like decline in an empire to begin appealing to more millenarian perspectives. And this was just one of the big ones that was in the air was Christian Zionism as an extension of premillennial dispensationalism. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, what's interesting is that after 1967, um, we kind of have a loss of credibility of these um, evangelical predictors. Hal Lindsey is the best one to bring up, who even folks like John MacArthur, um, the evangelical pastor at Grace Community, um, will, who is a, himself a dispensationalist, has criticized Lindsey over and over again for these like ridiculous predictions, ideas of blood moons and Black Hawk Apache helicopters, like as being <laughs> referenced in the Bible. Is there, is it, it, I mean, like, it is a kind of, religious fan fiction that um is is in my opinion destructive to sincere interfaith dialogue it's destructive to uh contemporary new testament and hebrew bible research it's destructive to um actually being able to address contemporary geopolitical and geostrategic issues like the israel-palestine conflict because one is motivated by an ideology to end the world mm-hmm yeah, it's it's. I mean, um, th this is this is interesting because there's some there's some really interesting overlap. To um, few back in September, I interviewed Tad Delay. Do you know his work? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was talking to Tad Delay about against and specifically about his framing of evangelicalism as a death cult in very you know <laughs> you know explicit terms. But talking about when when you're talking about the environment or something, it's like, well, how do you reason with a death cult? Like, how do you, like, you know, how, how do you work with somebody who believes the world's about to end and it's probably best that we're the ones pressing the button? Like, I, I don't, you know, when you're talking about nuclear weapons, when you're talking about the environment, and then, yeah, we return to Israel-Palestine when you're talking about this situation. Um, 
it's really hard to negotiate with a huge chunk of Americans who, who do genuinely believe, well, yeah, this is going to happen. Of course, a conflict is going to happen in Israel. That's the beginning of the end times, after all. Mm. Um, what's remarkable is that mainline churches have resolutely condemned Christian Zionism. Like uh, uh, the ideology of, uh, of, you know, the mainline denominations from the United Methodist Church to the PCUSA to the United Church of Christ. I mean, even the Anglican John Stott has a quote where he says, uh, I mean, and again, I don't know if I agree with the way John Stott put this because of its supersessionism, but he says, political Zionism and Christian Zionism are biblically anathema to the Christian faith. True Israel today is neither Jews nor Israelis, but believers in the Messiah, even if they are Gentiles. I wouldn't have gone so far to say it in, the, in, in, in these words, but people have um, articulated their resistance to the yeah. takeover of Protestantism in general by right-wing evangelicals who subscribe to premillennial dispensationalism. So mm -hmm. there, is, there is a kind of um, resistance to uh, right-wing evangelicalism and its political eschatology. Um, nevertheless, evangelicalism in the United States is marked by this kind of Christian Zionism in a profound mm -hmm. way. And, you know, like, you know, yeah, the, the main line has been able to stand up to it. However, the main line is in a massive decline Absolutely. while evangelicals are still growing to my understanding. So, you know, it's, it's, a uh, it sucks. <laughs> What I want to get into is a, a discussion of popular perception, which um, Lifeway in 2017 did a poll, and it found that 80% of evangelical Christians believe that this creation of the state of Israel in 1948 was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Holy shit. So, so we're dealing with pretty shocking numbers, right? We're yeah. dealing with like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who go to church with some frequency. If I mean, like, studies have come up that said since Trump, a lot of evangelicals don't even go to church anymore. Um, so uh, the question of who exactly these people are is now up for debate. Uh, I, you know, uh, we can bring up, uh, I can bring up some titles for your readers to consult a little bit later. Um, uh, but the, the, the main idea is that these are committed people, ideologically committed people who functionally believe that a contemporary ethnostate is playing a role in the return of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do with that in terms of like uh, helping to deprogram people from their ideologies, but it, it, is, it is the state of the, the moment. That even in 2023, the end of 2023, we have people sincerely committed to the health, welfare, safety, and well-being of the Jewish state, um, the self, the self-styled Jewish state, I should say, um, mm -hmm. because not out of some foreign policy goal, but because they functionally believe that at the end of the day, a third of these people will be saved, the two-thirds will be annihilated in some way, shape, or form, and it will be the spark that brings forward the return of the Messiah, the second coming of mm -hmm. Jesus. Very little concern for the, for the welfare of Jewish life in general, a pretty anti-Semitic um, conception of eschatology, um, and one that gives credence and credibility to the actions of an ethnostate, yeah. um, which opportunistically endorses the, the, um, the efforts of Christian Zionists 
to uh, rubber stamp its policies. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, in part because, I mean, but part of how, I mean, Israel relies on U.S. military, you know, support. And so, yeah, it, 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 it makes a complete pragmatic sense to work with the Christian Zionists, despite the fact that they they don't want good things for the Jewish people. Like, they they want to put a chip on the board to set up the end times. Like, <laughs> Another dimension that, um, that it behooves saying is that these are, like, comparatively speaking within the history of Christian interpretation, these are new interpretations. Mm-hmm. they're well, so, not you you yeah, had mentioned the uh the return of of jews to the homeland being an interest to like calvin and luther how is that kind of different from say like more modern christian zionism now like the premillennial dispensationalist type so it would have been an interest to the folks in the second and third waves of the of the reformation not so much for calvin and luther themselves um calvin and luther who would have had you know, aggressively supersessionist uh, theological views, it would have been um, the Puritans oh, right. who yeah. came afterwards, right? And their view, their view definitely wouldn't have been some kind of premillennial dispensationalism. Because yeah, re- reform's traditionally amillennial, right? Generally, reform theology is traditionally amillennial. That 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 kind of began to be um, challenged with the growth of British Israelism. And the oh, growth of okay. of uh, you know uh, ideas that people, some scholars call it the Hebra- the Hebraification or the Hebraizing of of the Protestant tradition um, in uh, in the time of uh, Edward the Sixth of England, and you have these uh, uh, Lowland Scot Presbyterians and the English Puritans with their rejection of like. The Pope, the Papist, Romanist Episco- Episcopal Church in England, mm-hmm. and arguing for a need to you know radically simplify religion to reform religion. It was some of these people who began to talk about the need for um, a literal interpretation of some prophetic utterances in the Book of Romans, and then mm-hmm. a little bit later we get more literal interpretations of the Book of Revelation. Okay, got it. Trying to think where to go from here. Um, yeah we have lots of avenues there's yeah i know there's there's a lot um well maybe let's see you know we we kind of did the story after 1967 you know the the war um but say war yeah yeah i'm trying trying to think if there's more we can say about the present how we got here exactly um or or what exactly here is because I, mm. I you know i don't know i don't know if we know like 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 you said it's kind of hard to pin down what the evangelicals are anymore especially i think um you know like like you mentioned post 2016 post trump this has been like a really strange shift in evangelicalism where it's growing but also people aren't going to church as much anymore and increasingly having like less and less doctrinaire opinions on things you know it's it's very strange what's happening to evangelicalism um, okay, so there, I, I've, I backwards figured out a question here. So, like, with the shift that's happening in evangelicalism, do you think that's going to impact Christian Zionism? Or if, is that one of the things that's, you know, not going to change by the kind of bizarre shifts that are happening in evangelicalism lately? So, 
I think it's important to talk about the incredibly fringe nature of of uh, of Christian Zionism. So the National Council of Churches, which is uh, the largest ecumenical body in the United States, includes mainland Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, um, traditional Black Christians, Evangelicals, Peace Churches, formed in 1950 after World War II, um, or in the context of World War II. Um, really, really important for the civil rights movement, right? Mm-hmm. They, in 2007, um, approved a study resolution that basically said that um, Christian Zionism was bad. Yeah. Um, the RCA, the Reformed Church in America, in 2004, a little bit earlier, said that Christian Zionism and dispensationalism um, will do nothing to achieve peace in Israel-Palestine. The Mennonite Church also condemned it as well. So we're getting to a place where liberal evangelicals um, are rejecting um, Christian mm-hmm. Zionism in the in the in the time right before the early 2010s. Interesting. Okay. And, yeah. And this split between liberal evangelicals and conservative or right wing evangelicals um, created the conditions where people like you know David Gushy, right? He he's written. Mm-hmm. A lot of he's an, he's an evangelical who's talking about like why one would stay in the church, why one would leave the church, similar to Brian okay. McLaren's work. Um, okay, yeah, got it. Um, got it. Uh, and kind of really highlights the the um, the faithlessness and the hypocrisy of right wing evangelicalism. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, the right wing evangelicals who exist today use Christian Zionism as one of the founding pillars of their ideological apparatus. Um, mm-hmm. they, it is indispensable to Christian Zionism. And a, a remarkable observation that I had is that everybody across the European continent, at, at least, who is radically pro-Israel, especially mm-hmm. the cultural elite in Germany today, um, they have a kind of suspicious form of anti-Semitism in their idea Mm -hmm. that no matter what, it's important for Jews to have a homeland. There's an undergirding ideology that we don't want Jews here. Mm -hmm. We don't want Jewish people here. Right? Yeah. So that that kind of really storied kind of old form of nationalist anti-Semitism, which says we have to be really supportive of the state of Israel because we don't want Jewish people in our country, is an integral component, in my opinion, of right-wing evangelical Christian Zionism. It is, okay. it is this kind of strange dialectic of philo-Semitism alongside radical anti-Semitism, which, mm-hmm. which basically says we are uh, unconditionally supportive of the state of Israel, no matter what they do, to whom they do it, uh, at what scales they do it, as long as we can reduce the number of Jewish people in our own country. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is, yeah, that that's, you know, whether that's something that's being consciously thought, that is fundamentally the the what's taking place. Because, right. yeah, and I mean, you know, this is something that gets point out, pointed out a lot, but conservative evangelicals oftentimes have a a hostility to, you know, they, you know, s- stuff that will be culturally considered Jewish, you know, associated with that. Always talking about the the urban elites, these urban. Um, you know, the intellectuals or whatever, the way that education is going to corrupt you. Like these have roots in anti-Semitism, that that kind of notion. (laughs) 
And so it's it when you combine that, there's a sense that what it is is evangelicals prefer Jews go over to Palestine so they can fulfill their prophetic role rather than, you know, kick up a fuss and do anything that resists Christian hegemony in New York City or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. And we, we, uh, we're ultimately left in a position today where, I mean, these people are fucking nuts. Right? <laughs> they're, 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 they are enabling forms mm-hmm. of ethnocultural anti-Semitism mm-hmm. by reinscribing what some scholars call the Judeo-Bolshevik myth. Yeah. Right. Which, which is this idea that the Frankfurt school um, uh, of critical theory is responsible for this kind of cultural Marxism, which mm-hmm. is at the bedrock of destroying heteronormative Christian r- capitalist society. And mm-hmm. the, the specter <clears throat> who stands behind that is the Jewish man. And yep. mm-hmm. um, I think the fact that we're in the situation that we're in today is deeply unfortunate because there, to put all my cards on the table, it is evident that there is anti-Semitism on the left. Sure. But anti-Semitism on the right is is no longer being talked about as mm-hmm. a really <clears throat> pressing prominent force because of the politics of this kind of weird double bind of supporting the politics of the state of Israel while also being radically and ridiculously anti-Semitic in one's domestic frame. And I think that this dialectic is silencing the really scary rise of anti-Semitism on the right since the Trump administration. Yeah. And because of the current crisis at play, that view is no longer being talked about as loudly as um, potential examples of anti-Semitism on the left. Mm -hmm. And that's not good because we have to be conscious of all forms of racism, discrimination, and hatred on all sides of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And if we're not, it's very possible that at the next election cycle, people will get into power who have a plan for, you know, for this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not pretty. Um, So that's where my mind is right now thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Because I mean, you know, whether, whether or not they're necessarily anti-Semitic now, a lot of ideas that float around in the right, they root back into from anti-Semitism. You talk about the, the Judeo-Bolshevik myth, becomes cultural Marxism, becomes CRT is in our classrooms, becomes trans right. people, you know, like trans, you know, uh, uh, they're making our kids trans shit, right. you know, like it, groomer, you know, paranoia is like all of these things, like they, they root back to this old Judeo-Bolshevik myth in, in, in the formation. And I, I think there's even... There's like kind of a real dark irony that <clears throat> in the the Nazis were one of the first, you know, pushing this like Judeo-Bolshevik myth. And the Frankfurt School themselves were people after the war, often Jews, who were trying to understand how to never let this happen again. Absolutely. And and they've been targeted as the the enemy and they've been used as a way of bringing back the Judeo-Bolshevik myth. It's disgusting. Absolutely. Um, but it's also really tragic, especially like I think it's an unfair way to look at those thinkers who were, I think, really important. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so what might be interesting is to talk about the particular kind of theological valences that are at play with um, 
dispensational Christianity as a as a sort of last step in our conversation. Like, what do these people right. actually believe? Right. And I think what what I want to highlight is a couple things. Number one, many dispensationalists do not believe that the Sermon on the Mount, the 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 Beatitudes, applies to Christians today. No way. I didn't know that. They believe that the Beatitudes apply for the church age, which we are not in. So dispensationalism hmm. divides the history of <clears throat> right, life right. into different, I think it's like seven or eight different dispensations. Right, right. And this is like as far afield from mainstream ecumenical interfaith dialogue. Uh, someone like Karl Barth who would say they're a monocovenantalist, right? There's only one covenant. The covenant mm-hmm. that God has with human beings, which is a gracious covenant. Right. It includes the, you know, sign the covenant at Sinai, it includes the covenant with Abraham, it includes everything. Um these dispensationalists are basically um using a really pretty pencil to define salvation history into nice concrete blocks that have different rules that apply to different people at different times. Sure, sure. Okay. And so when you ask some dispensationalists, like, do I have a moral obligation? to care for my neighbor they would say Mm. no not in this age wow wait so so what age are we in the dispensationalist fantasy what what age are we in if not the age of church is it the age of spirit that's a great question i'm not exactly sure uh i'm looking at what are the seven dispensations right now um and the sixth dispensation is the dispensation of grace which is what we're living in now and Mm -hmm. the seventh dispensation is the millennial kingdom of christ at which point the um, the uh, the beatitudes and the, and the sermon on the mount would would become relevant. Okay. Um, the the dispensation of grace um, is, uh, is excuse me. Earlier I said that it's not the church age. This is the church age. Oh, okay. And the 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 age of grace, the church age. Um, it's lasted for two thousand years. We don't know how long it's going to last. Um, but some of the things that were written in the gospels do not apply for people in this age because they are only for the ideal, um, you know, kingdom of Christ that will last a thousand years. Um, it's all, it's all lunacy in my opinion. No, no, that's, I mean, yeah, I, I don't find it to be very compelling theology at all, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I know there's, um, I don't know. There, there's been variations of this. I I've seen, um, in the main line, because uh, I, I mentioned age of age of the spirit. I don't remember what thinker that is, but I've I've heard that that talked about as like um, you know uh, that, that that there are different eras that have different ways of God relating to humanity, and I I think that's that's um, it's kind of strange that that is you know that's in in some liberal denominations as well. I I, I don't because I don't think it's good. I don't think it's a good theology, and I, I think it it causes some some problems. <laughs> um, you know any form of dispensationalist type stuff, <clears throat> but yeah, that's where that's pretty that's much what I got have. Here. I don't know if I don't know if that's a if that's a good enough amount of content for you. If you'd like to go on some other trajectories, or let's let's go on a little bit, but I'd say wrap up within like fifteen minutes. You know, maybe maybe it might be interested to interesting to moving away from just Zionism in general. I guess thinking about you know this is this all being tied to you know a project of believing that the world is ending soon. And the kind of millenarian worldview. This is, I, I don't know, something that I am constantly kind of thinking through because I'm interested in why people are attracted to these kind of worldviews at specific historic moments 
um, when it feels like things are kind of caving in. I'm thinking of, with premillennial dispensationalism, I'm thinking of the movie A Thief in the Night frequently mentions as um, an example of, well, we know this shit's happening, is the existence of nuclear weapons. You know, so mm. there's a, a tie to it, an, that kind of like existential anxiety seems to be part of... To, to me, what's attractive to these views. I also I also know from, you know, a little bit you've talked about, I, I believe you are interested in more like apocalyptic viewing of like the gospel in the New Testament and and kind of um, ways of looking at that. I, I guess what's the difference between taking seriously that kind of apocalyptic millenarian side of Christianity that can be used in a very liberatory way versus like Christian Zionism or the belief that we don't have to take care of the environment because the world's going to end in a hundred years anyway, or whatever. That's a great question. I think for me, my commitment to apocalyptic is more of a question of genre. Okay. So um, it basically looks at the way the apostle Paul integrated various strands of Christian, uh, of, of intertestamental and Christian literature. Um, like the, the really famous text of Enoch, to uh to kind of uh create a middle path between one view of uh, uh forensic apocalypticism which views the crisis of human beings as a result of the free choice of adam and eve mm -hmm. and another view which is very present in the enochian tradition which really relies heavily on a reading of genesis 6 which talks about the nephilim oh and yeah, yeah the 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 kind of humanity being consumed by the evil stench released by the corpses of the Nephilim. If all of you are interested in this, I can also recommend other books as well. But the, the point is that Paul finds a middle path between these two radical extremes and tries to articulate a human anthropology um, uh, through the lens of a Christology in his letters mm -hmm. and, 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 and you know, in his writings. This is very different from uh, people who take the book of Revelation as, which is not written by Paul, obviously, mm -hmm. as a sort of script for their political machination. Um, so for me, apocalyptic is a genre, okay. Um, which it, it's not so much a method. It's not a okay. method of interpretation, right? Apocalyptic simply refers to the the kind of cosmic scale of things that God has revealed to us, mm -hmm. and that's it's the it's the root word of you know apocalypse, which means disclosure or, or revelation. Yeah, the revelation. Yeah, it doesn't mean end of the world, and. The unfortunate thing is it's come to mean end of the world. Right. Um, and I would say that the difference between what I would say as a, is, is a healthy cosmic perspective on, on Christian faith and practice that understands um, the reconciling work of Christ to be something that applies to all people at all times and all places. Um, mm -hmm. Christian Zionism and Restorationism and Dispensationalism takes the opposite tack. Mm -hmm. And it instead particularizes each regime of God's supposed interaction with a particular people group as being a unique instance. Mm -hmm. There is no covenantal um, overarching thread that unites all of these instances, but instead talks about different time periods where the rules of the game are incredibly different for each time period. Sure, sure. And what that does is it makes God arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, God arbitrarily interacts with human beings. It, it it begins to divinize and idolize the text of scripture rather than view scripture as a kind of springboard that points to Jesus. Sure. What it does is it, it divinizes the text itself as a sort of historical roadmap, a literal rather than symbolic roadmap that um, helps to explain how we got here and will allegedly explain where we're going. Yeah, that that that's a good answer to that. I 
you know, w- one other thing that that came to mind while you talk with you talking about that, um, although it's a bit bit returning to an older part of the conversation, but um, you know, we, we we talked about the difference between supersessionism and then Christian Zionism as like you know two two ways that the Christian tradition has um, related to Jews in a you know very bad way. What what is the correct way? And I you know maybe that's a too broad. Or too bold of a statement, but how 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 do we have a not not anti-Semitic Christianity? Um, you can look at several domains of New Testament research. One of them, the one that I'm not particularly involved in, is called Paul within Judaism. It it seeks to uh, rectify the um, evident and uh, really nasty anti-Semitism in the Christian tradition by articulating Paul's relationship to the Jewish tradition as a kind of in-house dispute sure that paul as a jewish person was articulating particular uh distinctions and divisions within judaism okay um and i think there's a lot of merit to this position my own position would be apocalyptic which is represented right. by people like beverly gaventa martinia c de boer um douglas campbell and the main idea by uh, behind apocalyptic is to say paul is not invested in, it's not necessarily that it's rejecting a lot of the ideas of Paul within Judaism, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's simply saying that Paul is committed to a cosmic perspective of the universe that is informed by this Enochic literary tradition, rather than being informed by Hellenistic um, uh, Platonic philosophy. Okay. And so I think both of these positions are offer legit, legitimate arguments that kind of refute and reject anti-Semitic supersessionist interpretive strategies. Um, so depending on which which tack you decide to follow, the kind of apocalyptic or Paul within Judaism, I think both are pretty immune and argue strongly against um, okay. anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic interpretive strategies. They're just the current, current state of the field, these two yeah. different positions. Um, uh, I think the, the strategies people can take are looking at, you know, references to the Jewish people in the Gospel of John, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And looking at what the text refers to somewhat cynically as the Jews yeah. all, over and over again. And understanding that John, when he's saying this, doesn't mean the entirety of the Jewish people. Right. He's often referring to the scribes, the Pharisees, the 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 established Jewish leadership who uh, collaborated with the with the Roman Empire to, you know, to to uh, work towards the death of Jesus. Right. Um, John is by no means making a blanket statement about the uh, bl- about about blood libel about ab- about some kind of you know uh, yeah. ethnic responsibility for the death of Jesus. Right, and I think that people who interpret it that way, ironically, tend to be Christian Zionists. Yeah, yeah, that's which true. is a very strange irony. People who take the most unpleasant, uncharitable, historically inaccurate interpretations of the New Testament tend to be those people who are advocating for Christian Zionism. That doesn't make any sense to me, but I no. mean, that's just where we are right now. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it makes sense. and doesn't because yeah, it doesn't make sense ideologically. Like, like the, it feels like it's intention with their beliefs, but you know, if you associate both with a very, very literal, straightforward reading of the Bible, you know, or in specifically straightforward and literal reading of the English translation of the Bible that they have in their hands, um, and you know if they th- then it, it could be really easy to just read john see well the jews the jews the jews okay got it instead of you know interrogating that or um i don't know i know i know there's been translations that have been moving away from uh translating 
that chunk of John as the Jews. Um, Absolutely. Because it's not what, you know, because because it's, it's got so much of that negative baggage with with how it's historically been interpreted versus how it what meant at the time. Definitely. Well, I'm trying to think. Um, I think this is, you know, yeah, we, we've hit about the end of this here. Um, I guess... Trying to trying to think of a nice way to ramp this up here. I I guess what you know I get you, you know you you said there's no you don't really know what to do about. I feel like that's um, a running theme of our conversations. I like, I know when, when, when we, we first talked when we first talked it was about um the 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 queer apocalypse and yeah yeah know, sexuality and I was and I was like you know um, harboring on the I still think you know getting married is a good idea. And but I'm not sure. Like I don't know what to do. And then for the Israel-Palestine conflict episode, I was like, <laughs> "What do you do with this like ridiculous shit show of a situation? I have no idea. I can't tell you what to do." And now for the Christian Zionism, Zionism. episode, I'm like, "What the fuck do we do? I have no idea." And I think this is the curse of being a historian, right? Where I am not yeah. like I'm terrified of offering concrete policy proposals because it will inevitably explode in your face. Mm -hmm. Everyone who who offers a concrete um positive proposal in the world there will be some kind of blowback to that proposal mm -hmm. in unforeseeable and unforeseen way and mm -hmm. i think one of the most powerful tools we can have in academia in in everyday life is the is the act of critique mm -hmm. and critique is so important because what we're doing is we're not saying we shouldn't offer any concrete policy proposals right what we are saying is that let the people who are offering concrete proposals listen to those who are offering critique and then offer their proposal. Mm -hmm. Because the critique that that I'm offering is that the legacy of right wing, I mean, within the context of 20th century America, the legacy of right wing Christian Zionism has been twofold. Number one, it's aided and abetted uh, um, anti-Semitism at home. Mm -hmm. um, and it has aided and abetted an ethno state in committing ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And so... Both of those are terrible. And yeah. I think, I hope that whoever listens to this conversation will be inspired to, if they're university students, study harder at their exams. If they're, if they're working adjacent to policy, be more attuned to the contradictions and dialectics and tensions inherent to an ideology as complicated and intertwined as Christian Zion, right? Yeah, yeah. That the concrete proposals of what we do are informed by the historical legacies and genealogies that led us to the present moment. And I think mm -hmm. the, the legacies and genealogies that led us to the present moment have created the conditions where someone can be a Christian Zionist and also dreadfully anti-Semitic at the same time. <laughs> right. Right. And right. I think what we need to do is sever that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one step towards reconciling this difference is that make it impossible to, um, to to be anti-Semitic and also support the state of Israel. I'm not saying this is an ideal solution because ideally one wouldn't support any ethnostate. <laughs> right. But I think moving in the right direction means that if you are going to support the state of Israel, you should not also support the wholesale annihilation of the Jewish people right. by some cosmic eschatological event. It makes no sense. And yeah. I think that being consistent and logical about your views is more important to me than having the right view. And I know that's a controversial position, but hmm. getting the right answer, getting the right position is a dialectical process. Mm -hmm. And I can't expect everyone to land on the same position that I'm going to land on. 
But what I do expect everyone to hold to is a rational and consistent worldview. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to support the state of Israel, you cannot support <laughs> the destruction of the Jewish people. Right. It makes no fucking <laughs> sense at all. Right. So that's what I would say is like a logical mm -hmm. uh, next step is is being clear and consistent about what you actually believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a good way to to kind of wrap up here. And I, I yeah. And I, I mean, and I think we've we've highlighted a lot of ways that anti-Semitism sneaks into Christian theology. So if you are someone who listens, who is, is uh, actively church going or, you know, identifies as a Christian or whatever, you know, there are a lot of thoughts that people, you know, people will say something like, well, the, the covenant of the old Testament doesn't count anymore. And, you know, now we're in the age of church. I've, I've heard that at liberal churches before and that's supersessionism. It is anti-Semitic and it has been used that way. Um, I, I don't think it would be common anymore, but I mean, there was periods of time where somebody would not thinkingly just say, well, yeah, the Jews killed Jesus. Right. Absolutely. And so it's, it's, I think it's good to be aware of these things because, because these, these theologies do get used as justification for violence, for genocide, for whatever. And so, um, if you are someone who is a Christian, keep, uh, keep an eye out for that stuff, push back against it, et cetera. Um, and if you're not, then I guess uh, if you're not a Christian and you're just listening to this, well, I, I hope you enjoyed kind of just some horrifying spectacle of us kind of lay, laying out to you what, what our horrible tradition has cooked up. <laughs> well, Keanu, this has, as always, been incredibly insightful. Um, and I, yeah, I really, I appreciate you coming back so fast, too. Like, Yeah, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see what, what difficult problem I'll drag you back on for next time that we can't come up with a solution for. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to another exciting episode of the Fruitless Patreon. Um, I'm going to start reading the names of patrons at the end of Patreon episodes as well. So if, uh, if you're listening to this, that means you're one of these people. Uh, you are either... Gavin Aronson, Stephen Atkinson, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, Moss, Kyle Gannis, Thomas C., James R., Leo Zachary Dickinson, or Chris Barker. I will see you on the main feed for another installment of the Fruitless Book Club with, uh, hey, with Chris Barker. So, see you then.